Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, B.C., focused on being church with mission in mind. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. Today, we're thrilled to end 2020 and start a new year with our friend Bob Ronglian. We were asking Bob to take us deeper into some of his reflection around what is actually at stake when we decide that we want our lives to reflect the life and teaching of Jesus. Well, hi, Bob. Thanks for being here today. Uh, thanks for your willingness to share your expertise on this topic. So I, I'd love to start off with a bit of a bio. So tell us about yourself. What are you into these days? And how do you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, great. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you guys in this conversation. Um, yeah, Bob Ronglian is my name, in case it gets pronounced <laughs> differently. Uh, it's kind of a tongue twister. I was uh, born in Montana, third generation, a lot of history there, but my dad was an airline pilot, and so we lived overseas when I was a kid, so I had a lot of cross-cultural experience growing up, and uh, eventually came to kind of feel the calling into full-time, a life of full-time mission, and met my wife, Pam, who was a full-time missionary uh, living in Holland at the time, even though she's American. And so uh, we were smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe in the 80s when it was still under communism, that, things like that. And uh, then, yeah, I went on to get my education, lots of higher education. And um, that was where I really started to put together my passion for Jesus and the Bible and also the places where the Bible took place. Uh, we've lived overseas a bit, but mostly have carried out our mission in California, pastoring a couple of churches, one in Northern California, one in Southern California. And now we live in Los Angeles. And for the last six years, we've stepped down from leading the local church so we could invest ourselves more fully in training church leaders around North America and also in the Middle East and also uh, leading people on unique immersion experiences in the footsteps of Jesus and the footsteps of Paul. And uh, also so I could do more writing. That sounds pretty ideal to me. <laughs> um, so Bob, as a bit of a spoiler alert for our listeners today, um, we're talking about the way of Jesus. Can you just talk a little bit about how you got interested in this topic, the way of Jesus, what's that meant to you? Uh, yeah, give us some insight. Yeah, well, I mean, Jesus, of course, has always been at the heart of my own faith as a Christian. And um, I think when I, when I became a Christian in my teens, uh, you know, was believing in Jesus was kind of the center and the focus of my faith, my faith life. And, and I didn't really think too much about following Jesus. Um, but I, as I grew in that relationship, uh, and, and as I studied the Bible, and as I said, I, I did a lot of advanced degrees in biblical studies and New Testament and studying archaeology of the Bible and things like that, 
the more I got into studying the Bible and the technical sides of it, the more I came to realize that Jesus was the center of all those things, the center of our Christian faith, the center of the historical church, the center of the biblical narrative, that Jesus is really the main thing. <laughs> and so for me, that's kind of how my passion for Jesus and focus on Jesus has developed, is just becoming more and more in love with Jesus, fascinated by Jesus, and desiring to understand, not only understand him, but also uh, to really learn how to follow him more closely. And so having lived overseas, as I said, as a kid, I was very, I was always attuned to kind of the cross-cultural aspects of things. And it always just seemed natural to me that you would want to go and visit the places of something that you were studying. And so the more that I studied Jesus, the more I wanted to go to the places where he carried out his mission. And that's what got me into archaeology and cultural studies, sociology, that kind of thing. For the record, this podcast will be kind of the way that our community kicks off 2021. Um, and so we're thrilled that you're doing that with us. But we wondered if um, from the outset here, you could give us a word that starts with re. And so we, we've done this with all of our uh, guests that we're looking at for expertise, inviting them to give us a re word that uh, gives us a posture through which we should enter this conversation. So do you have a reword for us? Yeah, I mean, the one that comes to mind is recover. Uh, that's, I think that's a lot of what my, my scholarship or my study has focused on, is, is recovering ancient things that have been lost over the centuries. And I think that, you know, that's a big part of following Jesus because Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. So if we are going to know him or who he really is and follow him as he really lived, then we need to kind of recover that way of life that he lived for us and what it means for us today. So recover, I guess, is the word. Awesome. Well, as you reference the idea of the way of Jesus, of course, we think of the, the passage that talks about the way, the truth, and the life being what Jesus calls himself. I'm curious if you could help us look a little deeper at what each of those, in terms of how we're looking at it here, what each of those words signify. So like way, truth, and life. Do you? How do you uh, pull those apart and and give different nuance to each of those words. Yeah, I love that saying of Jesus. You know, in the Gospel of John, he gives a number of I am statements, and that's kind of his final I am uh, statement to the disciples in the upper room. And it's so, it's, it's so powerful because he's describing these three aspects of who he is to us. And I think, as I said earlier, when I became a, a Christian, I focused on the truth of Jesus and really understanding and agreeing with and trusting ideas about Jesus and the things that he taught. I mean, he's pretty much recognized as the greatest teacher in all of history. 
And there's so much truth, you know, as he himself says, the, the truth will set you free. That was another I am statement. I am the truth, he said. And so there's so much about Jesus to study and understand. And there's so much that he said that is so amazing and fascinating that that really occupied the center of, of my Christian faith. And I think a lot of Christians do that. And, uh, and rightly so, because the truth is amazing, you know, but, but there's so much more to Jesus than just ideas or conceptual truths. And when Jesus says, I am the way, it's interesting. That's the first of the three words he gives. I am the way, uh, over the last, I don't know, 12 ish years or so, I've, I've come to realize that the way of Jesus was really being neglected in my life, that I was so focused on the truth of Jesus that I had sort of overlooked the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is the pattern of his life. And it's a little bit more subtle in the Gospels and in the Bible generally because it's kind of the underlying pattern that's, that's there sort of behind the teachings of Jesus. But, there, but, but when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus lived in a very particular way. There were, there were rhythms in his life. Uh, you know, he would get up early in the morning to spend time with the Father. He would take uh, times of rest after times of busy work. He, you know, there, there were patterns to his life, rhythms to his life. There are also ways that he gathered with people. He did go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and gathered with that large community. But he also gathered in, in homes and, and, and engaged with like a house full of people. And, and he also gathered a smaller group of people, you know, 12, that he gave full access to his life. And there was also three people that were even more intimate in, in his relationship. So there's these kind of ways that Jesus gathered with people and, and so forth. So what I'm trying to describe is that there's uh, there's a lifestyle, if you will, that Jesus lived, which we often kind of overlook, and I know I had. And what I've come to realize is that, you know, when we look at the life of Jesus, we start to realize this is the life that we're meant to live. You know, follow me means come and emulate the life that I'm living. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is to be somebody who's seeking to live what I like to call a Jesus-shaped life, a life that looks more and more like Jesus. But, but Jesus' life is so amazing that we often feel intimidated by that, or we feel like a chasm between me and Jesus' life. How could I ever live that kind of life? Or we even come up with theological ways of saying, oh, well, Jesus was God and I'm not God, so I can't live the way Jesus did. But the call of discipleship is clearly to live that life. And what I found is that when my trust in the truth of Jesus starts to come together with an intentional practicing of the way of Jesus, this lifestyle that he lived, that more and more the fruit of that is that the life of Jesus is growing in my life. And the fruit of Jesus' life is more and more becoming the fruit of my life. So, I almost think of it like a simple little mathematical equation. It's like the way of Jesus plus the truth of Jesus equals or produces the life of Jesus. Just to back up for a second, we've talked about what uh, it looks like to have the way missing. 
Have you run into an experience or could you maybe chart for us what it looks like to really invest ourselves in the way of Jesus, but neglect the truth? You know, is there, is there, are there examples of people who, uh, well-meaning folks want to follow the way of Jesus, do it in a way that somehow is missing part of that equation that, that um, inevitably equals living or emulating the life of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that you can easily overly emphasize any one of those, um, and so like if if we're focused on the way of Jesus, but we're sort of ignoring the truth of Jesus, I think what happens is we get to be sort of the people who are trying to bring about social transformation, or we're trying to do good things, but we're kind of doing it in our own terms in a way. We're not necessarily um, doing it in the context of, for instance, Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God. It's sort of like we're building our own kingdom of, you know, social reform or something like that. And the same way with the life. I think some people, they try to live a life that looks like Jesus, uh, even like the supernatural stuff Jesus did, but it's not necessarily rooted in the ways that Jesus went about doing it. So, you know, you see, you know, faith healers are out there, healing people, but it doesn't actually look that much like the way Jesus healed people, you know? And so I think any one of those, you can kind of overemphasize and miss the, the power of the others. I can totally see that, how, how that's happened in my own life and uh, maybe in those that I've observed. So thanks for that. Um, just switching gears a little bit, uh, Bob, you're kind of an expert on the context of Jesus. You've led trips to the Holy Land and you've I'm putting this in air quotes, walked where Jesus walked. Um, what can you tell us about looking at the way of Jesus through a realistic cultural lens? What was Jesus's context like? That's, that, that's the challenge of recovering the way of Jesus is that we have to kind of engage with history, culture, and archaeology. You know, in, in the last 150 years, we have this Kind of resource that we didn't used to have, and that is a systematic way of studying the physical remains of these places. And so, uh, you know, for me, what I what I try to do is help reconstruct for people uh, the world of Jesus, the culture of Jesus, and the, the setting and the context of the things that he said and did. I think some of the big ones are what is the nature of discipleship in the first century. Uh, how do families function, um, and what was the relationship between, say, religion and daily life? I'm wondering, Bob, if you could give maybe a, a paragraph summary of each of those three kind of questions that you were asking. I know it's going to be hard, but uh, what, what can you tell us about those? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, for me, I always understood discipleship as mainly an understanding kind of a thing. Uh, I think anybody that reads the Great Commission knows, oh, making disciples, that's a big deal. Jesus made disciples. He told his disciples to make disciples. But, but what, is that, what does discipleship actually mean? And for Jesus, it wasn't a class, a curriculum, a book, a video. Uh, it was a relationship. And there was definitely teaching that was a big part of that but it was teaching in the context of a relationship. 
And I think we often sort of reduce discipleship to the teaching of truth or concepts. And for Jesus, it was an invitation into a relationship in which, in which the disciple could learn to understand truths, but they could also see firsthand this way, this lifestyle being lived out that they could then, you know, imitate and learn to follow. So that's a, I think that's a huge gap for a lot of us. Um, in terms of family, I think most followers of Jesus today don't realize that the central thing that Jesus did in terms of his way of life was to redefine family and to put that at the center of his way of life. So Jesus' own biological family didn't embrace his vision and mission. And so what Jesus, as a single Jewish man, did was he formed a new kind of family. And it was a spiritual family. It was an extended family. And it was a family that was focused on those outside the family. So it was a, it was a we sometimes say a family on mission. It wasn't just a family focused on itself, but it was a family focused on those who were on the margins. And so I think that, you know, we, we usually think, oh, Jesus came, he, he got some disciples, they left their families and they went out and they did a bunch of teaching and miracles and it was awesome. And then Jesus died and rose again. Well, that, that's totally missing that actually the heart of what Jesus did during his mission was teach his followers how to live in a different way together and in a way that was both an extended spiritual family, but it was a family that was seeking and saving the lost, that was reaching those who are on the outside. So I think that's a huge one that needs to be sort of recovered in a way. Um, and then, yeah, the last one was just about kind of religion and life. You know, it, in many ways in the West, for us, religion is kind of a category or a compartment and, you know, we, we, we think of, oh, here's where our faith is, or here's where our religious life is, or here's where our spiritual life is, or something. And it's sort of a compartment of our life. And that's not the way it was or is today in the Middle East, where religion, faith, spirituality was much more integrated into all aspects of life. And I think that's a big thing that we see with Jesus is that his faith was not just a theology, it wasn't just a religious practice, but it encompassed everything that he did. The spirituality of Jesus, again, as I talk about a way of life, it was something that formed and shaped everything that he did. You know, the way Jesus said it was, the son only does what he hears the father, or sees the father doing. And he says, I only speak the words that the Father gives me to speak. So Jesus was constantly living out his relationship with the Father in both with the, the community that he built, his spiritual family, and with those who were kind of on the outside. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful to better understand that context a little bit. Um, I'm just wondering then if you could flesh out a little bit for us. There is this idea of um, things in the Bible being prescriptive or descriptive. So um, prescriptive meaning we do it as was done and descriptive meaning um, it was described this way in the Bible, but it can be lived out in kind of other ways. How do we balance the actual cultural historical context of Jesus 
with this idea of weighing what things are descriptive versus prescriptive? I think that is a really, really important question, and it's a really challenging question. Um, so I, have, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I'll try to summarize them. Uh, I think that when Jesus said to men and women, follow me, he was inviting them to come close enough to him that they could not only hear what he was saying, his teachings, but they could also see what he was doing, this lifestyle. And it, it was a call to imitate that way of life. Um, but Jesus wasn't trying to make clones of people either. And so he was giving people really good information, like revelatory from God information. And he was inviting them into this lifestyle of imitation. But he was also ultimately preparing them and sending them into a life of innovation, meaning that the, the apostles got sent out around the world in all kinds of different contexts where they had to kind of figure out what does this way of Jesus and this truth of Jesus and this life of Jesus, this gospel, this good news, what does it look like and mean in these other cultural contexts, you know? So I guess maybe a simple way of saying it is, I think when we read the gospels and we look, or we're looking for the way of Jesus and asking what aspects of Jesus' life are we being called to imitate? I think that it's those aspects of Jesus' life that stood out from his culture and from his, the, the, the people that he was sharing life with. So I don't think Jesus is expecting us to wear robes and speak Aramaic and, you know, walk everywhere uh, or, you know, these are the things that everybody did. And I don't think that that's, I think that's descriptive, not prescriptive, you know. But when Jesus uh, reaches out beyond the kind of religious boundaries and touches people that were considered unclean and untouchable or welcomes people into his home and his family that were considered traitors or outcasts, you know, that's like, wow, that is not the norm. And that is clearly something that we are meant to imitate, you know. Um, even the supernatural stuff, you know, again, we sometimes we say, oh, Jesus healed people, and he had these prophetic insights about people and situations. Well, obviously, that's because he was God, and we're not, or whatever. But actually, Jesus was very clear that he was training the disciples to do these things that were outside the norm. And he explicitly sent them out to do these things, to heal people, and to cast out demons, and and uh, and, and the, his followers actually learned how to do those things in the authority of Jesus. So, again, those are like, wow, those are not <laughs> typical, you know. And so that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, oh, well, we're not supposed to do them. Quite the opposite. It means that's part of the example that Jesus was setting for us, you know. So you could almost go through the Gospels and say, what are all the things that were kind of exceptional about the way Jesus lived? And for sure... It seems to me those are the things, you know, maybe there's some less radical things that we're supposed to imitate as well, but uh, it seems like those for sure are the proscriptive things. Um, I'm kind of mad at how great that answer was <laughs> because uh, because it, it what it sounds like you're saying is there's a lot of freedom for creativity and our kind of 
our own personalities, the way that God has created us um, to relate to Jesus. Because I often feel a bit stuck on the fact that Jesus is so different than me, that he was in his 30s and single single and Jewish and Middle Eastern. And, and sometimes I uh, just get caught up on that and think about all the all the people that aren't like that. Yeah, if I could just follow up quickly on that. Um, I think it's it's so critical that we understand the relationship between imitation and innovation, as I was describing it. Because, you know, as we study the information, the truth of Jesus, it's so important that we submit ourselves to the imitation of Jesus first by saying, oh, I do it this way, but Jesus did it that way. And he seemed to do it that way for a reason. So maybe I should try it Jesus' way and see what happens, you know? And the last 10 or 15 years of my life, that's what I've been doing. After 20 some years of being a pastor and being, you know, blah, 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 I realized there were a lot of things in my life that I was doing my way and not really Jesus' way. And, and so that, that in, in a sense, the discipline of submitting to imitation is at the very core, I believe, of what it means to be a disciple. But then as you're saying, out of that imitation, then allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us into the innovative expressions of what that would look like in our time and place and given who I am, uh, that you're right, there's so much freedom in that. And I think it was Dallas Willard who said that discipleship is, is learning, is figuring out how to, to do what Jesus would do if he was you living where you live in the time you live, you know? And that's the sort of creative side of it. Uh, there are things in our life that, very much are meant to look like the way Jesus did it, but the expressions of that are going to look as different as our culture and time are and as we are than Jesus. I'm wondering if you have any kind of stories that immediately come to mind of someone who was clearly not in the the context or the, the body that Jesus was, but imitated and innovated the way of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus was single, um, he was male, but I think of people that I know who have uh, kids, young kids, like the Elfords, for instance, and, uh, you know, you've got all the challenges of raising your kids and and being a married couple where you don't, you know, you have to answer to another person and their needs and all those kind of things. And so I think of, you know, friends of ours with young kids who have really embraced the way of Jesus by saying, we want to be disciples who are building a, an extended spiritual family that welcomes in those who are outside the faith and outside the family of God and connects with them where they are. That's very much a way of Jesus thing in my, from my point of view. A retired couple that I know of who started to build that kind of a community of mission in their retirement community and particularly through golfing. Um, but they also didn't just stay within the parameters of, uh, of hanging out with people who were 55 and older or whatever, uh, but they realized that Jesus built an um, intergenerational kind of extended family. And so they really kind of were breaking down some of the Western cultural boundaries of, you know, kind of classifying people by age or whatever. 
Well, I appreciate those examples and love that you referenced folks in retirement. Um, I, I'm 40 now and not afraid to say it. Um, but you're not retired yet. Not retired yet. I'm thinking maybe next year, you know, take a, take early. I'm actually about to turn 41, but, um, <clears throat> I, uh, I noticed that, um, the way that I'm seeing things now is way different than how I saw it when I was 30. And then if I track back to when I was 20, it's, it's even more of a, a leap in maturity. My question is, is kind of, I'm not sure if I'll articulate it well, but I wonder as we see the person of Jesus in scripture, certainly there's a maturation process that happens from when he was born to when he was 33. And uh, like I've noticed one of, one of the tendencies in me in my younger years was a more radical version of something that over time becomes nuanced by life experience. So I'm just curious how we fit that into, like, what would a retired Jesus have been like? And maybe that's not even a fair question to ask. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. There's a whole interesting thread in the Gospels about Jesus' development as a human being, which I think is quite fascinating. And, you know, in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, who talks just a, a bit about Jesus' growing up life, experiences. And there's this repeated phrase, you know, that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom uh, and favor with God and people. And, and it's kind of Luke's way of saying that, hey, Jesus was growing and he was developing and he was maturing, you know. And uh, we get tantalizingly few details about those first 30 years or so. Also, the writer of Hebrews says an interesting thing about Jesus that it was through Jesus' sufferings and the things that he experienced over his lifetime uh, that brought him to, it's sometimes translated, perfection. Um, to telestai, it means to the fullness of, you know, to, to the completeness of, almost like a, when a piece of fruit is perfectly ripe, it's like just right, you know, kind of a thing. It's, it's complete is the idea. And, and so the writer of Hebrews kind of describes how Jesus' experiences brought him to this place of completeness and fullness. All of that, to just cut it a little bit short, is to say, I think that Jesus came to the fullness of who he was as a human being, even within his 30 years. So I don't think we missed out on anything that he didn't like live longer into his sunset years or whatever. Um, I think that from those 30-some years of Jesus' life and mission and, and what we have recorded about him, you know, we have enough to apply to all the different seasons of, of our lives, which hopefully will be longer than his. <laughs> so those are my thoughts. It's a little speculative, but, you know. I think that's a fair answer for sure. And I like the idea of fruit being perfectly ripe and you know in retirement maybe things go get a little wilty i'm not sure but, you know <laughs> yeah. just to stick with the uh the metaphor sorry to all of our retired friends sure, that's definitely i'm 56 and that's definitely happening wilty happens right that's uh i don't know the greek word for it but i bet there is one <laughs> I'm Greg Elford here with Jess Steffick, and today the Re podcast is talking with Bob Ronglian about deeper nuances related to a life of being a Jesus follower.
We want to kind of shift to talking more specifically about how we practically live into uh, this balance, as you describe it, I think, of the way, the truth, and life of Jesus. And I think um, you've said it, it well that a lot of folks are are, captiv- are captivated by the vision of Jesus' teaching and the vision of the kingdom and how inspiring that is. Um, but then when it looks like a relationship that we try to pass on to someone else or we try to help someone understand why it's something so worth pursuing, it gets a bit murky to try to pass on things that become so meaningful personally to uh, a person that, that maybe is approaching something differently. And so I'd love to just talk a bit about uh, this word discipleship, which I think like we hear that word not, not usually outside of sort of um, something referenced in the Bible, at least these days. So can you start off by just explaining what in the world a disciple is and what discipleship is? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, both the Greek and the Hebrew words basically mean learner. And, um, you know, again, in our Western mindset, we usually think of that as comprehending ideas. But as I mentioned, you know, biblical discipleship is much more of a comprehensive form- life formation process that is carried out through relationship. And so I think that's you know, I think we can kind of demystify discipleship by, by saying that discipleship is uh, learning to become more like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did the way he did them through uh, intentional friendships and mentorships, you know, or apprenticeships or something like that. It's interesting that Paul, as he got out into the Gentile world, he realized that discipleship language was foreign to Greco-Roman people. And so you, you don't find any reference to disciples or discipleship in his letters, even though he was constantly doing it. <laughs> and what he did, though, was he translated it into familial language, because the Greco-Roman family, very much like the uh, Hebraic Jewish family, was a system of discipleship, essentially apprenticeship and training. Uh, where, you know, families were mostly built around a family. The main job of parents was to essentially train their children, apprentice them into the family business. So Paul describes really discipleship to Greco-Roman people as sort of spiritual parenting, if you will, you know. So I'm just throwing out different words and different ideas that, that kind of can help us understand maybe what a disciple is. And I think one of the big uh, things that Westerners miss about disciples is that the whole point of discipleship is to become a disciple maker. The goal of the disciple was always to become rabbi. And that sounds intimidating you know, to people, but again, the way Jesus did discipleship was not an elitist thing. Discipleship in his time was quite elitist. It was the best of the best of the best that got to be disciples and become rabbis. But Jesus chose everyday, ordinary, even shockingly traitorous, uh, scandalous outsider type people to be his disciples. And he was showing us that discipleship is for everybody. And it doesn't matter if you're learning disabled, if you're old or young or single or married or kids or no kids or or, you know, whatever, whatever category you're in, 
all of us, I believe, have the calling and are empowered to be disciples who make disciples, you know, in our own way and in our own context. You know, some people would talk about discipling someone else or being the uh, the person that someone's learning from as something that only particular people are really skilled for, that you have to have a certain uh, pedigree or you have to have a certain amount of knowledge or maybe influence is really the the magic word as far as what would would make you qualified to disciple someone else. What would it look like, do you think, for folks that aren't who you would typically think of as your A-team disciplers to be active in discipling someone else or in investing in someone else? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good, really important question strategically. Um, and I think the main thing is to, to realize that discipleship begins with friendship so if, if you're able to make a friend, you can also make a disciple. And it is important that you are actually following Jesus, that you are actually a disciple, if you hope to be a discipler. Um, but you don't need special education or you don't need some, it's not a special category of people. It's, uh, it's just a question of uh, who is it that God is calling you to connect with and invest in and invite them to follow you as you follow Jesus. You know, that's the way Paul said it. He said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And Paul uh, knew that there was a lot of things about him that were not like Jesus. <laughs> he was the, he said he was the worst of all sinners and he had failed terribly because he persecuted the church of God, etc. So if anyone should be disqualified, it would be Paul. But he, he had the boldness to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's really what making disciples looks like. The important thing is that Jesus is alive in us and that we are learning to submit to him and follow him and listen to him. And so if Jesus is showing through our life at some level, then we can be an example for others. And, uh, you know, some people will disciple lots of people at a very high level and other people maybe don't have that same capacity, and that's fine. You know, like Jesus in his parables talks about, you know, the different servants being given different amounts of capital to invest. So we don't necessarily all have the exact same amount of capital. That, that doesn't matter. What matters is what are we doing with the capital that we've been entrusted with? And so discipleship is just taking whatever God's given us, wherever we are on the journey, and investing that in others, inviting them to follow us as we follow Christ. Um, you know, sometimes we use the image of a sheep that, you know, every disciple is meant to look like a sheep from the front because they're following a shepherd who's helping them follow Jesus. But they're also meant to look like a shepherd from the back because they're helping others to follow Jesus as they are following him. It's like that, like that discipleship mullet that we describe of like party in the back business in the front just kind of a, a take on that that is exactly a take on that i think you should grow out the mullet just so you could be a living example of that yeah <laughs> i think that's more descriptive than prescriptive fortunately so bob talking about discipleship here i'm just wondering is there any kind of universal standard or uh 
way that we can all aim for being disciples and disciplers, is there a universal answer or does it just look different? Yeah, I mean, as we said, I think it is going to look different in each of our lives because we're different people. We live in different contexts and obviously different from each other, but also different from Jesus' context. Um, but there's, there's also obviously things that are going to look the same because if it's Jesus, then Jesus is going to be bleeding through what we're doing, right? And so it kind of reminds me of the question that Jesus was asked, you know, about what's, what's the greatest commandment, which was really saying, what's, like, what's the most important thing? And his answer was so simple, but so profound, you know, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor in the same way that you love and care for yourself. And then he was asked, you know, who is my neighbor? And he made it clear that, well, that means also those who are considered totally, you know, outsiders and totally far away from you. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan was his answer. So, you know, I think loving God and loving our neighbor, both the people that we are in community with, but also the people who are considered outside and far away or marginalized. You know, I mean, that, like Jesus said, all, everything else, in a sense, can come from that. So that, Bob, raises for me a question a bit off script, but one of the things that we see Jesus so consistently coming up against is the religiosity of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Zealots or whoever, the Essenes, whatever, whoever you want to pick. And I wonder, is that something that is kind of a, a prescriptive um, invitation of sorts in following Jesus, that there's an expectation or maybe maybe a trajectory that we should follow in where we see a religiosity kind of coming into church culture that to follow Jesus would be to stand against the way that inevitably unfolds? Um, or is that sort of a descriptive thing that Jesus had a unique authority where he could do that, but not so much for us? No, I think, I think the first is true, that there's a big part of the way of Jesus, which is about standing against the toxic aspects of hyper-religiosity and breaking down the barriers that that creates between people in terms of judgment and ostracization, rejection, and things like that. I mean, it's but like so many things with Jesus, you have to hold a couple of things in tension. You know, he grew up in a, a very devout family that was very religious and very active in their faith in terms of practicing Judaism. And Jesus continued that kind of lifestyle. He observed the Sabbath. He worshiped in the synagogue. He went to the temple. He went to Jerusalem for the festivals. You know, so you could say he was a very religious person in one sense. But what Jesus refused to do was to let the, particularly the human aspects of religiosity uh, take precedent over the God-revealed uh, truths and principles of his faith. And, uh, and that meant that brought him up against the religious leaders of his time who had developed so many religious structures and rituals, whether it was the Pharisees you know, in the synagogue or the Sadducees in the temple. Um, there were all these kind of structures that created this deeply divided society between the clean and the unclean, the insiders and the outsiders, the, 
the righteous and the unrighteous. And, uh, and Jesus totally tore that down in, in every way that he could. He challenged that uh, in ways that were pretty radical, you know. And so it wasn't that he was anti-religious, but he was uh, adamantly opposed to the aspects of religion, which are the kind of human constructs by which we try to judge people or control people or divide people. And I think that's a big part of the calling of Jesus. There is a radical aspect of, you know, Paul called it the dividing wall of hostility. And there's a big part of following Jesus that's about tearing down those walls. And that means breaking out of the, the sort of inevitable sort of expectations of religiosity, if you will. So do you have a kind of a field guide for, say, a young radical who is critiquing their church or, say, critiquing people that they've observed growing up and saying, like, this does not—this, in fact, seems like something Jesus would step into and start flipping tables. Um, I guess to follow him, I've got to tell my parents that I think they're hypocritical or I've got to— I've got to tell my church that they're soft, they've gone soft, and this isn't real. Um, how do you think you would uh, give advice to uh, a younger person or maybe a newer follower of Jesus that really gets wrapped up in the radical kind of denouncement of restrictive religion um, and doesn't know how to let it out with that nuance and that tension that you described? Yeah, that's a really, a really important question. And I, what, what comes to mind is that uh, we, we have to make sure that the radical expression of our following of Jesus flows out of and is this, the fruit of the deeper work that Jesus is doing in us. So, you know, Jesus didn't just come in as this kind of iconoclastic, radical reformer, you know, yelling at the, all the religious leaders and turning over the tables. He came as somebody who was loving the unlovable and uh, welcoming the outcasts and healing the broken and serving in humility and giving his life away to others um, and feeding the hungry. Um, you know, that this was the basis of his life. And the, the more radical, confrontive, challenging things grew out of that and were the sort of fruit of that or the overflow of that. Another way you might say it is to say that Jesus had so much authority because his life matched his teaching in that way. And I think sometimes there can be an immature uh, sort of young rebel desire to yeah, turn over the tables and change things and make them better because we see what's wrong with the church and all the hypocrisy or whatever, but it's not, but the proof is not in the pudding necessarily. Like we don't necessarily see the fruit of a better way of life coming from a person like that. And yeah, Jesus could critique the things that were messed up about religiosity of his time because he could do that with credibility because he was showing a better way because his life demonstrated the kingdom of God, which was the, the better way that he was calling people to. And I think sometimes this sort of young radical iconoclast doesn't necessarily have, we're like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, there are a lot of problems, but 
what do you got? You know? So you're saying that sitting on my couch and getting into a Twitter war isn't the most productive way to do that? <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. I feel targeted. <laughs> is cheap for sure, yeah. And that's so much the world that we live in, isn't it? Uh, you can just rip anything off on Twitter and, you know, copy and paste a life, if you will. Um, but there's no authority behind it because it's not necessarily being lived out. Well, Bob, um, in the spirit of kind of connecting a life to um, sort of a critique or maybe an adjustment, I'm curious, and not to put you on the spot, or I guess actually to put you on the spot, so you could picture that I'm a priest in a confessional booth and you're here telling me you're... No, I'm just... I'm kidding. But is there, a, is there an area of the way of Jesus or the life of Jesus that you say, this for me definitely stands out as like the hard one? Well, the, the way... You know, I think about Jesus' relationships in three different dimensions, you know, that his relationship with the Father was primary... And he was so deeply connected to the Father that everything he did flowed out of that relationship. Um, and he had this amazing investment in community. And like I said, he built a new kind of family. And he gave full access to the people in that family, invested everything in them. But that he was always going outside of the boundaries to people who were on the outside and on the margins, the least and the last and the lost. And uh, and so if you think of those as the three dimensions of Jesus' life, we sometimes say up with the Father, in with the disciples, and out with the world. Um, for me, I think it's that out with the world part that always feels the most challenging. How am I connecting with those that are on the margins of the church or society or whatever? I think that's where I often feel the greatest challenge and you know, feel like, man, I have a lot of growing to do there. COVID has made that even harder. You know, it's like, how do you connect with people when you're not supposed to connect with people? So we have, uh, we have uh, neighbors, two young men who are married to each other, and their life is pretty different than our life. Um, but we've really come to love them and, and be friends with them. And, and we can't gather with them necessarily, but we pass stuff over the fence all the time. You know, they, they, they like to bake and I like to smoke meats. And so I pass ribs over and they pass cake over and, you know, it's all good. So I think just, you know, that's what probably where I feel the biggest challenge is how do we keep making sure that we're not just isolating ourselves in this little Christian bubble. Um, oh, we love God and we love each other, but we're not necessarily reaching people that are outside the family of God. Thanks, Bob, for uh, your time. I'm really grateful for uh, yeah, the perspective you bring and the experience you have. We appreciate you, and uh, we hope to uh, chat again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Greg. It was an honor to be on the cast with you guys. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Bob Ronglian for his willingness to let us pick his brain today. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community, and of course, young Obi Elford for putting together the music that backs our voices. 
Join us again in two weeks when the Re podcast invites folks from the New Heights community to talk about how they interact with the way of Jesus in their own lives. This has been episode seven of the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. <laughs>